So you're in LA for the Dwell on Design event, correct? Yes. And you're going to give a talk about how public land can be used in resiliency efforts yes. to safeguard cities. Yeah. Um, I have to ask, because we're in Los Angeles, what do you think of Los Angeles as its readiness based on its public lands to respond to some resiliency efforts? Well, you know, it's, it's hard to say what role um, public space and park could play in resilience to earthquakes, except to say this. If you look at um, the terrible earthquake in um, Nepal, where did people go? They went to the public spaces. Uh, that's the first place you go is away from buildings into a public space. So the extent to which you have public spaces people can gather in and getting away from you know, falling objects and falling buildings, that's pretty important. Uh, I, I hate to be dark about these things, but these are things we think about um, across the board. So in East Coast cities, you have to think about two main issues involving um, weather-related disasters. One is hurricanes and storm surge, and the other is flooding from rivers. And we have seen uh, very recently on the East Coast terrible damage and death and destruction from hurricanes and also terrible death and destruction from river, or what they call riparian flooding. And then there's the whole issue of dealing with stormwater runoff. Stormwater runoff is both a engineering issue and a safety and quality of life issue, but it's also legal issues. Um, cities across the country are being compelled by the EPA to do a much better job of dealing with their stormwater runoff. Um, and that's an issue about what they call combined sewer overflows. Less of an issue here in LA uh, because most of the newer and more modern and western cities have separated sewer systems. But the older cities across America have combined sewer systems, basically meaning uh, the effluent from your toilets and from sinks and all the other dirty contaminated water goes into the same set of pipes that the stormwater runoff from the streets goes into. And whenever it rains a decent amount, that c combination of the sewer water and the street water overwhelms the system going to the treatment systems, the treatment centers, and then they, these gates close down and the combination of raw sewage and stormwater runoff goes straight out into the water bodies, causing water pollution, causing a violation of the Clean Water Act, and causing the EPA and state regulator, regulators to say, you bad cities, you're violating the law, we're going to punish you very severely unless you enter into a legal agreement with us called a consent decree. So where does this rambling story go, and what does it have to do with parks? Increasingly, cities encouraged by the EPA are looking at using green infrastructure instead of gray infrastructure to deal with stormwater runoff. So when you have a lot of rainwater going to storm sewers, you can do two things with it. One is put it in vast under engineered underground holding tanks where it gets stored and then gradually pumped out to the sewage treatment plants. The other is to capture it in green landscapes, what they call green infrastructure, to, to change existing parks and open spaces or build new open spaces that are dedicated to absorbing stormwater runoff. So this has created a really interesting set of opportunities for building and expanding parks. Um, so often cities will say, well, we don't have any money to fix this park, or we don't have any money to uh, turn this asphalt schoolyard into a playground, or we don't have any money to acquire new parkland. And then you say, well, what about your billion dollar obligation to capture and clean stormwater? What are you gonna do there? And you can get um, two for the price of one. You can get a nice park and a stormwater capture system. That's something that the Trust for Public Land is actually working on, doing what we call green playgrounds that 
uh, function as playgrounds, and when it rains, they function as giant sponges absorbing stormwater runoff. LA is certainly very much in need of that kind of incentive because obviously we're in a major, all of Southern California and all the Western United States is going to undergoing an insane drought. And you think that at this time we'd be more focused on being able to, on trying to develop those public spaces that can have that dual purpose so that we can make that investment up front. Well, it's, it's absolutely crucial for LA for exactly that reason. And LA is actually doing some things that regard, we are working with the city of Los Angeles, we being the trust for public land, uh, with the city of Los Angeles through its, transportation and sanitation departments doing something, a pilot project we're calling Green Alleys. And we're looking at um, the 900 miles of alleys that crisscross LA that, you know, right now are sort of service areas. People store their garbage back there. They tend to be asphalt, impermeable, hot, dirty, not green. And we're looking in the Avalon area at creating a pilot Green Alley system where we green them up we turn them from low albedo to high albedo, meaning that they um, will, instead of being dark um, material that heats up, there'll be a light material that stays cooler. They'll have plants along them and they'll capture stormwater runoff and put it back into the recharge, the groundwater in the aquifer, instead of coursing out into the, into the sewer system, the storm sewer system, or out into the LA River or something like that. So even though the city of LA has a separated sewer system and doesn't have the problem of the East Coast with too much rain, it has too little rain. It has to be a lot smarter about capturing the little rain that does fall and putting it back into the aquifer, putting it back underground instead of wasting it and sending it out to the ocean where it's, it helps to also pollute the ocean. So the, even, even street water runoff has a lot of pollutants in it. It's got animal waste and all kinds of bacterial pollution. It's got the hydrocarbons and other stuff from cars, the oil, the gasoline. It's kind of nasty. So uh, the, the nice thing about putting it into the ground is the ground has this uh, almost magical ability between the plants and the soil to bioremediate those pollutants, to absorb and to capture and isolate the pollutants. And certain plants are better at doing that than others, at isolating and capturing those pollutants. So again, different motivations, but the same basic purpose. Don't send that stormwater straight into the storm sewer. Capture it, put it back in the ground, remediate it, and let it gradually seep out and into water bodies. And you mentioned you're working specifically with urban designers. Are you also working with architects to address these kinds of design decisions? So we work with, um, so the Trust for Public Land, our urban programs, what we call Parks for People, we work in several dozen cities across the country in a very large capacity in some cities, smaller in others. And we, we basically work to help cities create parks. They could be parks, playgrounds, sometimes very large parks. Sometimes they're natural areas where we acquire the land and turn it over to the city. Sometimes they're very small. In New York City and Philadelphia and uh, Newark, New Jersey, we're taking the classic old city schoolyard, which is basically just a big sheet of asphalt, turning it into a beautiful playground that functions as a stormwater absorption sponge, and then is also open to the community after school, so it becomes a community asset instead of just you know, close to the community and used by, by school kids during the day. Um, and so we, while we have some landscape architects on staff, they primarily function as project managers, and we hire landscape architects primarily, but also architects. So for example, in San Francisco, we just worked on the, the total renovation and transformation of a park in the Tenderloin, known as Bodecker Park. And this was just a, a terrible public space, uh, unfortunately much better known for drug dealing and drug use than for use by the community and by um, children. 
And so we entered into a, a partnership with the city of San Francisco Parks, which is a terrific partner with us. We raised a lot of private money and some public money, and we did a $10 million complete turnaround of this public space with a very strong community engagement aspect. And we also tore down and built a new community center with um, a lot of green aspects to it, um, and then made the park also be very green with stormwater capture and using uh, sustainable materials and sustainable practices. And in fact, we um, were so successful, we, we, this is our first project to get a uh, ASLA sustainable sites rating. So we do work with both architects and landscape architects, um, hydrologists, engineers, soil scientists, ecologists on all of our different projects. And you're based in New York, correct? Yeah, I, I'm based in, in New York, and we have offices in about 30 cities and states around the country and very active programs in many of those cities. And a lot of your work most recently was under Mayor Bloomberg's organization of um, working with resiliency efforts as well in New York City. Are you still focused on that kind of work, or where are your efforts focused? Yeah, so um, I worked for the better part of 30 years for the New York City Parks Department, including 11 years as Parks Commissioner under Mayor Bloomberg, where we had a very ambitious park building and expansion program. We spent about $6 billion over 12 years, added about 1,000 acres of parkland, and did complete renovations in many parks. In my new capacity for the Trust for Public Land, which I joined almost three years ago, um, I work across the country, uh, work to help cities. Uh, we have programs in many cities, including Los Angeles, San Francisco, Portland, Seattle, Santa Fe, here on the West Coast and in Denver. And uh, we, we function as partners, as nonprofit sector partners with cities where we'll work to develop projects, find the funding, both privately and publicly, bundle that funding, and in many cases function as, as almost like a design-build design partner of the city where we will do the community engagement, do a community-based design process, work on including um, creative placemaking aspects to our projects, then find the designer, oversee the design, bid out the construction, and oversee the construction. So we, it's rather audacious, I have to say, because we have very small, very skilled teams. It's almost, they're almost like design-build SWAT teams. Uh, in one case, we actually did, we did the landscape design for the Bodecker Park, but in, um, in other cases, in most cases, we hire designers. We hire landscape architects and architects and engineers. One of our most complicated projects was in um, the city of Newark, New Jersey, which is a very impoverished city. And they have a, a river. A river runs through it, as it runs through many cities. The river is the Passaic River, and that particular river was notoriously polluted. It's, a, in fact, so polluted... It's an EPA Superfund site, which is a really bad thing. But it's gradually being cleaned up. And one of the other problems in Newark is, though the city sits right on this river, there's, there was virtually no access to the river. It was completely ringed off by commercial and private development, and particularly by factories who contributed to the polluting of the river. So we have built the first public access uh, riverfront park in Newark, working in partnership with the city, with a county, with local foundations, and built a beautiful new um, $10 million riverfront park working in a former brownfield factory site and next to a Superfund site, the worst possible conditions for building anything. And I was sort of astounded that we would take on something that complicated and that potentially uh, difficult to pull off. But it got pulled off and we've 
finished the first phase. It's open to the public, and we're busy working on the second phase. Oh, that's very exciting. Um, so I want to hear a little bit about your background leading up to working with the Trust for Public Land. What you said you joined three years ago. What um, what is your educational background, and what led you to work in parks? So. Um, True confessions. I am completely unqualified academically for most of the jobs I've done. My uh, academic background is I have an English literature degree. You're a positive example for everyone like you. <laughs> That's very exciting. Yeah, no, I um, English literature degree from Middlebury College and a subsequent master's in journalism from Columbia University. I thought I was going to either write the great American novel or become the great American journalist. But um, it's not too late. It's not too late. Uh, I do a lot of writing, actually, now about parks and nature for both Huffington Post and for the Nature of Cities blog. But um, I sort of, by virtue of my work in journalism, I was interviewing, I was in New York City and doing a series of interviews of parks officials in the late 1970s uh, when the parks of New York were a disaster and New York itself was, had just come out of a brush with bankruptcy. And things were just beginning to turn around in the city of New York. There's a new mayor, a guy named Ed Koch, and a new parks commissioner, a very innovative guy named Gordon Davis. And some very entrepreneurial, innovative things are being tried in the parks department, such as that's when the Central Park Conservancy was developed as a public-private model. And uh, this guy, Gordon Davis, also wanted to invite people back into parks and make them feel welcoming. So he reinvented the um, sort of National Park Service park ranger tradition something he called urban park rangers. And I was in the first group of urban park rangers hired to work in Central Park. So that was the beginning. And then I still thought I was going to be a journalist, went to journalism school, but realized after a while working as a reporter that I missed the actual public service and went back to the parks department to help run the park rangers. And then did a series of jobs, including press, natural resources, historic uh, preservation, then became the Manhattan Parks Commissioner uh, under Mayor Giuliani, and then when Mayor Bloomberg was elected, I was appointed Parks Commissioner. And in intervening times, I've done some work for a couple of nonprofits: the uh, New York Botanical Garden, um, the Municipal Arts Society, which is a planning and preservation nonprofit in New York, and then now with the Trust for Public Land. But you could say my entire career has been centered on the outdoors, on public spaces, on um, parks and buildings and things like that. So really, <laughs> interestingly, though I have no academic qualifications, I've spent my life working in the realm of landscapes, parks, the environments, and learned quite a bit, learned just, just enough to be a little bit dangerous, but also learned that you know, the first thing you do in those kinds of jobs is find and hire the experts. So how have you seen public park design, and I'm not sure exactly um, what your role is in deciding design decisions, and perhaps not at all after the fact, after the land has already been acquired, yeah. but um, how have you seen the idea of what a park can be changed, especially in New York as we have things like, I, I'll say the High Line only once and you don't need to address it correct, directly, but just to see like how things are kind of changing and how we're coming to this more inclusive idea of what a park can be. Well, there, I see se several sort of big trends or ideas. Um, the, first, the first idea is that in many cities, um, particularly growing cities and dense cities, there's, you could say there's no room left to make new parks. And in a traditional sense, you'd be right. 
So that's why in cities like New York and San Francisco and Chicago that are still growing and are quite dense uh, and, and Los Angeles, you have to look at the alternative spaces. You have to look at the former industrial areas, the formerly industrial waterfronts, the abandoned rail lines, um, the marginal spaces. Um, that's where the parks of the future are for cities because it's enormously expensive to acquire private land and to buy and tear down people's houses through eminent domain. It's expensive and almost impossible. Um, so the future for the dense, fast-growing cities, I include Portland and Seattle, the Twin Cities, Minneapolis and St. Paul, and Dallas and Houston, the future there is in the adaptive reuse of the formerly, the, the marginal spaces. And you've seen that in the High Line where you take a, an abandoned elevated freight rail line and turn that into a linear park. Uh, you're seeing it now in Chicago where the Trust for Public Land is doing something called the 606. Guess what? It's an elevated abandoned freight rail line. Uh, you could call it a son of High Line, but it's actually twice as long as the High Line. And unlike the High Line, it will have a separate bicycle trail on it. So it's going to be a wonderful thing. And it opens next week. So the 606 is opening on 606, and it was designed by Michael Van Valkenburg, the, uh, who I consider to be the, the Frederick Law Olmsted of this, this era. And besides other things like kind of integrating multimodal transit and such, um, and reusing industrial yeah. spaces and everything, um, what about this new way in which, and it may not certainly actually be new, but uh, how park space is managed and owned within a city, um, it, such as like in places like San Francisco, it's quite common to have publicly, privately owned, publicly open spaces. Mm -hmm. So um, often these aren't even outdoor spaces, right. but they're uh, somewhat in highly dense cities, they're somewhat open, um, either office patios or mm -hmm. plazas or such that have been kind of co-opted by the public and often can be taken advantage of in different ways because they aren't actually publicly owned, but they're privately owned. So you have this kind of hybrid allowance that, that gives away for things like Occupy Wall Street protests right. in Zuccotti Park or playing ping pong on your lunch right. break in San Francisco. So um, I wanted to hear your opinion on how uh, Popos and privately owned public spaces um, maybe influencing not only park design, but like how cities prioritize public space. So there's a, a lot of interaction now between the public and private in the public space realm. On, on one side, you have nonprofits, private organizations like the Central Park Conservancy, the Prospect Park Alliance in New York, in San Francisco, the Golden Gate uh, National Recreation Area Conservancy. Um, and so that, that nonprofit involvement in the creation and management of public space is certainly a growing trend. Uh, the other private element, as you mentioned, is the privately owned public spaces, or POPs. There's a long tradition of that in New York City with the, the, what they call bonus plazas. So developers of office buildings got the option to build a bigger building if they created a plaza around it, what they call a bonus plaza or a privately owned public space. Very mixed uh, track record there. Some of the places were great successes. Some of the places were terrible, that they were fenced off, people kept out, um, unpleasant, shaded, nasty, <laughs> windy. Uh, so the, I think the key, if you're going to give up light and air for a bigger building in exchange for privately owned public space, it has to be really public and has to be really good. Another example would be some cities like New York have what they call a waterfront zoning text, 
where if you own property on the waterfront and you're going to develop it uh, for anything other than its original use, manufacturing or shipping, you're obligated to create a public access waterfront park at your own expense and to maintain it at your own expense or pay the city to maintain it. And that's been a huge success in New York City. It's led to the creation of a lot of very nice waterfront parks. But the, the key is that the city mandates the design standards, closely monitors the design and construction, and then makes sure that there's funding set aside to maintain them. So um, in the ideal world, cities should be building and maintaining public spaces with public dollars. But the, the ideal and the real sometimes collide. And a number of cities just don't have the money to, to do what they used to be able to do. So looking at creative public-private partnerships, whether it's with POPs or with nonprofits, conservancies, or working with developers, is certainly an important tool in the development of open space. So do you think this is a kind of growing pain and eventually it will fall back onto the public's uh, No, I, I'm, uh, I think the reality is that given so many other societal needs and financial needs by city governments to try to achieve equity in housing, the, the needs to fund very expensive mass transportation, parks will still end up getting the short end of the stick. There's only a few cities where they're really spending adequately in parks. And even there, people would say they're not spending adequately. Uh, we, the Trust for Public Land does something called Park Score, where we assess how well cities provide parks for their citizens. And we look at the most important criteria is access, you know, how many people live within a 10-minute walk of a park or playground. Then it's how much of the city is set aside as parkland. What's the city investing per capita? And what kinds of facilities do they have? And uh, interestingly, the... There was a tie at the top this year. Two cities tied for the very best park system based on our criteria. And amazingly, it was Minneapolis and St. Paul. <laughs> so the twin cities were tied at the top of the rankings. Uh, and then you look at the rest of the top 10 or 20, and you see cities where you say, yeah, that makes sense to me. Uh, New York, San Francisco, Washington, uh, Cincinnati, Portland, Seattle, Boston. Um, these are cities that you look at and say, yeah, they're, they're exciting, they're vibrant, their economy is relatively healthy. And what do they all have in common? Pretty good park systems. So I'd make the argument that you can't have a great, thriving city without a really strong park system. And most of these cities who have good park systems are investing them. You know, they should be investing more. But you know, I think the likelihood that you'll be able to make do with just public funding is, is low unless we turn into a more socialist nation and start really taxing people at very high rates. I don't think anyone would disagree with you that yeah. it just seems commonsensical to say yeah. like you need public spaces, you need green yeah. spaces to create a desirable yeah. and enjoyable place to live. However, that almost it's very rare where that translates directly into incentives of actual how people want to spend their money and how right. they feel justified in being taxed for it. So I wanted to ask you how then, um, whether there's efforts made by the Trust for Public Land to try to develop like quantified studies of how actually having green space and having public access, access to public lands can have a quantified effect on either whether it's um, mental health or simply public health yeah. factors of just like what kind of uh, studies are being done to try to like justify those things on a factual level? Well, that's, that's a, a perfect entree because in fact, the most compelling argument for building parks in public space is to um, lay out all of the benefits that you get from parks and quantify those benefits. And the more you can quantify them through sort of a, a financial lens, the easier it is to make the case. 
But we at the Trust for Public Land talk about the stacked benefits. So when you say, we want a 10-minute walk to a park, well, that's nice. A park is a nice thing. But parks are so much more than a nice thing. So there are a series of benefits that parks convey that we enumerate. So the first and obvious one is health and fitness, public health. And there have been actual studies done that point to the very direct connection between parks and public health. For example, one study by the Rand Corporation found that 50% of all vigorous exercise, that's that heart healthy, blood pumping exercise, 50% of vigorous exercise takes place in a nearby neighborhood park. That's a great statistic. Then of course, parks have play a really strong role in the environmental health of a city. Uh, what we refer to as uh, ecological services, so or ecosystem services, so capturing stormwater, um, absorbing, storing carbon in the trees and in the soil, absorbing carbon dioxide, our, our primary waste product, absorbing particulate matter, and what do they give us in exchange? Oxygen. They reduce the ambient temperature, they provide shade, they provide habitat. So there's a whole series of quantifiable environmental benefits. The U.S. Forest Service did a study of the value of street trees in several cities and found that for every dollar a city would invest in planting and maintaining streets, uh, trees and streets and sidewalks, there was a $5.50 return in terms of the ecosystem services and then something like real estate values. The Trust for Public Land has done a series of studies about the economic value of parks. And we find that there's an anywhere from a 5 to 20% bump in the value of the property directly across the street from a park compared to property several blocks from a park. And so we've done a number of these studies. We just did one of San Francisco and found that the park system of San Francisco, San Francisco Recreation and Parks, throws off about a billion dollars a year of value to the city of San Francisco. And when you look at the statistics, 99% of the residents of San Francisco live within a 10-minute walk or a half mile of a park or playground. Is San Francisco a booming city? You bet. Um, people are scrambling to live there. Uh, unfortunately, there's the, um, the opposite side of this, this issue, which is the specter of gentrification. That's something we also have to think about, uh, and equity. It's a really mixed bag. We, of course, want everybody to have the best possible parks. We've actually had people come to say to us uh, when I was working for the city of New York and now with the Trust for Public Land, they say, please don't fix up my park because if you do, it'll become very, the neighborhood will become desirable and the, my rent will be driven up and I'll have to move out. It's really, <laughs> talk about a, um, a, a Hobson's choice there. So you say, okay, well, We'll, we'll keep the spark really crappy so that your rent stays low. That's also not fair, but you do have to think about that. So in one of our, in one of our uh, projects in Bozeman, Montana, we're developing what I refer to as the Central Park of Bozeman. Bozeman is a very small city, about uh, 20,000 or so residents, but it's doubled in population in the last 10 years. It's going to double again, and it needs, even though it's surrounded by big, beautiful mountains, it needs recreational space in the city. It doesn't have adequate recreational space in the center of the city. So we're developing a 62-acre site as a park, but seven acres are being set aside for the development of possible affordable housing there. So we really do need to think about um, things like transit-related development, but for example, in uh, St. Paul and Minneapolis, we're working, we developed something called the Green Plan for the Green Line. The Green Line is a new transit line and looking at the opportunities as the Green Line is created to create adjacent public spaces. So then you combine transit-related development and park-related development. 
and then um, also look at as you develop housing, how do you keep affordable housing and have adequate public space. You know, it's, it's fine to develop housing, but you better be thinking about if you're going to have increased density, where are the playgrounds, where are the ball fields? Uh, you know, people are moving into downtowns and cities across the country into, say, old manufacturing areas and saying, okay, I live here now, and I have a six-year-old, and I want to play t-ball, but there are no fields. Where are the fields? <laughs> you know, these are things cities need to think about as they promote development of formerly industrial areas. They're, they need to have a major master plan for public spaces and have standards uh, for how, how many acres of parks they have per thousand residents. And the, the goal, for example, in New York City was two and a half acres of parks for every thousand residents. Well, some neighborhoods have you know, 0.2 acres of parks per thousand residents. They're, they're park starved. So you have to keep those into account. And if you're, you also have to be smart about it and see how you can combine transit-related development, park-related development, and also make sure that you're preserving or creating affordable housing so that you have um, not just a city for the wealthy, but a city for the working class and for the middle class.